You're listening to the AFSN Kidney News Podcast. Jeffrey Weiss, MD, is Associate Dean for GME at Tulane and Director of the Tulane Internal Medicine Program. He is also the immediate past president of the Society of Hospital Medicine. In this episode, ASN Executive Director Todd Ibrahim speaks with Dr. Weiss about hospital medicine, its intersection with nephrology, and the future of the specialty. Dr. Weiss, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Todd. Happy to be here. Can you define what is a hospitalist? Well, the definition varies, and you're going to find uh, multiple different job descriptions around the country. But for the most part, you can say a hospitalist is a, a provider that predominantly spends his or her time caring for inpatients. The overwhelming majority of hospitalists in the United States are internal medicine physicians, though there is a uh, small but growing percentage of uh, pediatric physicians as well as individuals trained in in family medicine as well as non-physician providers such as PAs and nurse practitioners. As a former president of the Society of Hospital Medicine, what are you and your colleagues most interested in in terms of what drives them toward hospital medicine? Well, I think it it varies widely. Um, I I think what you're starting to feel in the hospitalist movement these days is a a joint focus on quality and patient safety and see it as a combination of caring for patients that are in the hospital today, but with equal mental uh, as well as intellectual attention devoted towards trying to improve the hospital system such that patients in the future receive better care safer care and more patient-centered care than what we're able to offer today. How does the hospitalist affect the quality of care and improve patient safety? One of the central tenets that if you're going to improve a complex system, uh, you really can't do it alone. It's going to require uh, multiple stakeholders, and that may vary from the, the physician providing the hospital's care, let's say in this case the hospitalist, but also the subspecialists that are a part of that care, as well as non-internal medicine subspecialties, surgery, obstetrics, neurology, in addition to uh, really the core folks, which include the nurses, respiratory techs, and clerical staff, and everybody that's a part of the hospital system. And unless you can enact that sort of team-based care and, and provide some leadership, then what you find are very disjointed, ineffectual uh, systems changes, which lead to bigger and bigger problems. But on the flip side, if you do find somebody that um, has the proximity and the contact time with all of these individuals, and that's really the unique value of the hospitalists is that because of their proximity and time spent devoted to hospital-based care, they get to know these individuals as people, and they're in a situation to, one, be familiar with what the system can and can't do, but also be familiar with uh, the various stakeholders and their interests in, in constructing meaningful system solutions. And for the for the centers that have really been successful in the way of enacting hospitalist groups, that's really been the sine qua non of the hospitalist group is the ability to yoke the strength of this team-based care to improve the hospital-based system. How have you been able to work with nephrologists to improve care? There are some things that are implicit as a relationship of the general internist that is providing the care for the inpatient with the nephrologist that's also providing the consultative care. Uh, and or the specially specific care. And, you know, a couple examples come to mind. One is that, you know, what you'd like optimally for, for the nephrology patient, and, and let's take it in specific, a patient that does require or soon will require dialysis as part of their care. Well, you'd like to have somebody that is very familiar with the system and the way of integrating these individuals successfully into a, a dialysis program 
and to be able to maintain that sort of care such that these individuals aren't bouncing back and forth to the emergency department seeking dialysis because of missed dialysis appointments, and uh, which is in large part a manifestation of not being able to successfully integrate the patient into the healthcare system. And the other part, too, is that there are many patients, this is not at all a mystery to the people listening to this podcast, but many patients that don't yet require dialysis, but you'd like for those that you're pretty sure are going to require that uh, as part of a, a long-term care plan, that you'd like to start making those arrangements earlier, such as preparing for an AV fistula for vascular access, for example. And that, that sort of coordination involves multiple specialties, vascular surgery as well as uh, nursing, social work, case management, et cetera. And the hospital is in a unique position to facilitate that care in concert with the nephrologist. I'm thinking about how broad hospitalist expertise must be and how it relates to the educational continuum. What's the certification and maintenance of certification process for a hospitalist? Well, it is a somewhat different paradigm. And I'm going to use a metaphor, Todd, and this will just be a metaphor, but I think it'll make the case that if you look at, uh, let's say, a business major coming out of out of college that ultimately wants to pursue a, a master's of business administration, well, most business schools will tell that individual, listen, you're better off going into, uh, into practice, work in the business world for three, four, five years, get some context and understanding of what business is like, and then come back and get your MBA because you'll have much more to put on the table. Uh, in the way of understanding the development of those competencies. And I think as opposed to the old paradigm of training, where an individual in residency training received their general medicine training and then immediately went into a fixed time period of fellowship, let's say in the case of nephrology, two years, that for the hospitalists it's, it's much more akin to the MBA, that where the focus is on systems improvement, to go right into a hospitalist fellowship, for example, and try to learn all of those components of quality, patient safety, how to manipulate the system, without having the context and the experience of working in a hospital system, you really lose a lot, I think. And I think that has been the genesis of uh, what the ABIM in concert with uh, multiple physician organizations, SHM, ACP, et cetera, has enacted in the way of focused practice in hospital medicine. And in some, it's individuals that have been in practice for at least three years as a hospitalist, demonstrating minimum number of, of patient encounters during that time having attestation from their hospital's group leader or CEO or CMO, COO, who then comes back and participates in quality improvement projects uh, via the practice improvement modules the ABIM sponsors to demonstrate competency in, in changing and improving hospital system, as well as taking a secure exam to demonstrate ongoing competency in the medicine itself. So it's a little different paradigm, but it is something that, as you say, does ensure that the hospitalist that is holding him or herself out to the public uh, is, in fact, fulfilling all of those requirements or all of those standards that we'd like to see in the ideal hospitalist, particularly with respect to being a systems architect and the ability to improve the hospital system uh, with respect to quality and patient safety. So their ultimate process is similar to maintenance of certification for nephrologists or for any other internal medicine specialist. First, a hospitalist has to maintain licensure and participate in high-quality continuing medical education activities. Second, they have to complete self-assessment targeted to hospitalist positions. Third, they must complete the secure exam, which has its own blueprint, and that blueprint is similar to other blueprints administered by the ABIM. 
And fourth, they must complete practice improvement modules or PIMS. In terms of the fourth step, what do you anticipate will be the types of PIMS that will be most appealing to hospitalists? Uh, right, and I'll clarify, it is, this process, very, very similar, uh, almost a carbon copy to the standard internal medicine maintenance certification process. The, the two uh, wrinkles are, one, that uh, this process requires the hospitalist to participate uh, with at least 40 points of practice improvement modules, whereas the standard internal medicine process is only 20. So a bigger emphasis there. The secure exam is about 25 to 30% devoted to competence in systems change, quality, and patient safety, which is about 30% more than what you see on the internal standard internal medicine exam. But the final component is that um, in getting to your question about which practice improvement modules are, are going to be most appealing, obviously those that are focused on uh, inpatient care, some critical care-focused uh, topics. But I think the most appealing, which is in a pilot phase right now, is practice improvement module focused on teamwork and uh, receiving feedback on how effective, as part of this PEM, how effective the hospitalist is in enacting team and collaborative environment with physicians, non-physicians, uh, patients, family, clerical staff, nurses, etc. How has the nursing profession or other caregivers, how have these professions changed to align with the hospitalist movement among physicians? Well, you know, I think, and if you look in broad strokes of what hospital medicine has done for the landscape of American healthcare, this may be one of the biggest wins. Because sustainable jobs, I'll tell you, and it really doesn't, uh, it's not unique to medicine, it's not unique to the hospital medicine for sure, but sustainable jobs really hinge upon fulfillment. And fulfillment, I believe, really comes as a product of personal relationships. And I think what you're finding is that Successful hospitalist groups, for those hospitals, they're much, much more successful in retaining nurses, clerical staff, et cetera, for longer periods of time in their careers at that locality. You know, my hypothesis is that it is a product of this repeated and uh, regular interaction with similar cohort of physicians that are there every day. I think what you're also finding within the nursing profession, job itself becomes much more fulfilling when the nurse feels like they're an integral part of the patient care team. And again, that gets back to the importance of setting that teamwork environment and having a hospital's leader that has the proximity and time and is regularly there with that team, uh, that makes all the difference. Another aspect of fulfillment is work-life balance and being able to control it. From the perspective of hospital medicine, what are the pros and cons in terms of work-life balance? Well, you know, and I think the pundits for hospital medicine would say, oh, this is a group of internists that really didn't want to do the, you know, the 24-7 care of hospitalized patients. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that what you're feeling in the hospital landscape is that, uh, and, and, and I'll say it's not even in the hospital landscape, it's in the community clinics or in the primary care clinics as well. The patients are sicker. The, the patients that we used to manage in the ICU 10 years ago are the people that we manage on the floors. And the patients we manage on uh, the clinics today are the people 10 years ago that we managed uh, uh, in the hospital wards. So for both primary care physicians and hospitalists, uh, and then add in the additional requirements in the way of meeting our view standards and documentation requirements for CMS, third-party third providers, et cetera, it's just become very, very intense across the board. And it makes a lot of sense to have individuals focused in 
in delivery practice, things that they're not wasting any time traveling back and forth from clinic to hospital um, or from hospital to clinic, uh, and allows them to be more efficient. And in full agreement with you, Todd, I think that the model not only improves work-life balance for the hospitalists, but in a successful model where hospitalists are good teammates and good communicators with primary care physicians, I think we've seen it's improved the work-life balance of the primary care physician as well. And, um, you know, paradoxically, uh, my hope is at least that the hospital's movement, if, if it develops in the way that we hope it does, will actually make primary care a more meaningful, uh, more fulfilling, and, and more sustainable career as well. How do you think it will affect the future of subspecialties? Obviously, ASN is most focused on nephrology, but just across internal medicine and other specialties, if the goal is to have a meaningful career for the hospitalist, but also to improve the careers and the work-life balance, as well as the quality of the professional experience for general internists, I'm just curious, what do you project happening with different subspecialties? You can say this, that for any given subspecialty, what a subspecialist does today is infinitely more complex than what they did 10, 20 years ago. And I think that we're just on the sharp upturn of this curve. And 10 years from now, I think just the things that we're going to be able to do within each subspecialty are going to be even that much more complex. And so see it as the IHI standard, right, that every physician should be practicing at the envelope of his or her license, that you're focused primarily on the things that uniquely you can do as your subspecialty that other people really can't do, and not having a lot of time and bandwidth sucked up in doing things that other people could effectively do at the edge of their license. So the point being is that I think the hospitalist provides some of the basic management of the inpatient care, importantly provides a lot of what would otherwise be very time-consumptive tasks, such as coordinating care amongst the different subspecialties and amongst the different services in a hospital, uh, freeing up the nephrologists or the subspecialists to really focus on, again, and if you believe that things such as gene therapy and, and very focused interventions within each subspecialty are, are a part of our future, which I do, uh, it really frees up the subspecialists to really focus on those things that are of their interest. I'm just wondering about the formal educational continuum as someone moves from being a student to a resident to a fellow. Or in the case of hospital medicine, there's that period between when they complete their residency and before they complete the ABIM focused practice, the three years that you mentioned. How will that experience change for other learners? Because presumably they will have less interaction with subspecialists and more interaction with hospitalists. You can argue that this change may have a detrimental effect on the career choice for other specialists because people are going to have less exposure to subspecialists and more exposure to hospitalists? Uh, yes and no. You can look at this and say, well, if, if all of the medical students and residents are going to be supervised by hospitalists, um, then there would be less than the previous model that would be supervised by say, a nephrology attending. But on the flip side, I would point out in that old model that I went through that there were often times that, that I was supervised by subspecialists in cardiology or pulmonary or ID that uh, really gave very little consideration to nephrology at all and dismissed the importance of working through some of the diagnostic algorithms because it wasn't their specialty. 
And what you can say is that a hospital certainly isn't going to be as good of an, as a nephrologist in working through different types of tubular disorders, type 1, type 2 RTAs, whatever, but it's certainly going to be better than a cardiologist or infectious disease physician in, in doing some meaningful approach to the management of nephrology. I think, too, what you're finding in uh, the new GME landscape is that by having hospitalists that are focusing upon the general medicine ward and providing that supervision, that ideally constructed, it's going to free up subspecialists to really do consultative roles that really is at the heart of what they love and to allow interested uh, students or residents to devote time as part of those elective experiences. I think they end up getting a really healthy dose of that exposure that, you know, may come out in the end as a wash, that uh, as many people do choose the different subspecialties. Do you anticipate the evolution of hospitalist subspecialization? No, I don't think so, Todd. You know, this was thrown out early. You know, requisite for being a great hospitalist, at least for the internal medicine cohort, is to be a great internist. and no way around it. And I just don't see the advantage for anybody in the way of hospital medicine separating out from internal medicine. I, I think you will find that there are, as there are now, people that call themselves hospitalists and they really do focus on just hospital medicine. But I think if you ask them, they're still going to say, you know, a, a hospitalist ends up being the adjective, but internist ends up being the noun. And I, I really don't see that, that, that division. What will be the relationship between hospital medicine and palliative care? Yeah, good question. And as a hospitalist, I will say that there are two common denominators of geriatrics and palliative care. There is a common denominator between the two, and the common denominator as practicing, practicing hospitalists, I'll tell you, is you really do have to have a physician that is intimately aware of the system because both are going to require more robust home health care needs, better coordination to ensure that you know, once they are discharged from the hospital, that people aren't lost in the system and that, that they have the resources they need. For palliative care in particular, I tell you, the other advantage is time. And having the time for a hospitalist to, to be able to sit with a patient in the hospital and really work through, and not in a cursory sort of way, but really work through what does this mean, uh, that you're at the terminal component of your life, and what is this going to mean? And to be able to provide the assurance. Because if you ask people, patients that are in that palliative care uh, cohort, if you ask them, what do you most fear? Uh, and the two things they'll say is, I, I fear uh, being in pain and I fear being alone. And to have a physician who's able, who has the time, who's not rushed to get back to a clinic or off to a procedure, but to sit at the bedside and say, listen, let me just talk you through it. And also, I can tell you, with my knowledge of the system, that you're not going to get lost. We're going to help coordinate all this for you. That makes all the difference in the world. So I actually think hospital medicine has um, a big role in both. I think it's the reason you're seeing more and more hospitals gravitating towards becoming subspecialists, if you will, within the hospital medicine field. Steve Panela, for example, at UCSF, really focusing on uh, on palliative care as part of the inpatient environment with an eye that that, that first critical step is what enables success in transitioning to uh, either home health care, home hospice, institutional hospice, whatever it may be next after discharge. You mentioned UCSF where you completed your residency. If my math is correct, you were there at the same time that Lee Goldman and Bob Wachter published the paper where they coined the term hospitalist. What did you learn from them that you continue to apply today? 
Well, no, your timing is exactly right, Todd. I graduated in 1998 from residency in 1999, and then uh, 98 to 2000, I spent uh, there as, uh, as junior fac chief resident, as junior faculty, and um, learned a lot of very imp- many important lessons from both. I think both Lee Goldman and uh, Bob Walker, one incredible visionaries. Um, could could see many years down the road that quality and patient safety was really going to become the focus, that the focus on transitions of care was going to be central to improving the healthcare system. And those were the lessons they taught us. And I think they were also brilliant systems architects in understanding that the old model of the hospital build being a really big building and physicians coming in and just working in their uh, few square feet and then leaving was just not going to be sustainable. It was going to require an integrated team-based care with a focus on patient-centered care, but still uh, involving multiple different specialties, multiple different providers, physicians, non-physicians alike, enacting meaningful change. And, and, And those were the lessons that I think that and the overall vision, I think it spoke to a lot of us. And you know, Mark Williams is, is fond of referring to our cohort as the UCSF Mafia, uh, which, which is fine. I'm proud to be a part of that cohort of physicians that um, left residency training at that time and went into hospital medicine, but there's been some big leaders, you know, Steve Panelot, Scott Flanders, et cetera, et cetera. As you look out over the next decade, focusing specifically on hospital medicine, but given your expertise in graduate medical education, how do you see hospital medicine and graduate medical education as they move forward into the next decade? Yeah, well, and let me break it into the two parts. I'll start with the non-GME components first. You know, I think the hospital of the future um, is going to be characterized by fewer and fewer uh, hard boundaries between silos. I think the hard boundaries between the emergency department and the wards and the wards and the ICU are going to start to go away. I think you're going to feel the ICU and and, uh, medicine wards as being more of a continuum. Um, and, and I think that's going to dis- – and as those boundaries break down, it is going to require individuals that um, have a foot on both sides, people that understand the ER system um, or the emergency department system, that understand the wards, that understand um, uh, the ICU. I think you're going to find more and more diseases that were predominantly managed by non-internal medicine subspecialties. Uh, start to become increasingly co-managed by internal medicine specialties, which I think is a good thing. Uh, and by that in specific, I mean the, the neurology stroke patient. Um, I, I mean the, uh, the obstetric patient that needs internal medicine care, uh, the orthopedic neurosurgery patient uh, that could benefit by having an internist there during the day with them uh, while the surgeons uh, may be in the OR. Um, I, I see that as the vision. I see, too, um, you know, assuming the Affordable Care Act goes forward, as we think it will, that there will be a new focus with, a, you know, a, a decided focus. And I know you've had a couple podcasts on accountable care organizations, um, but I think that's going to be a reality. And central to the accountable care organization is the ability to, to maintain effective transitions. So the hard silo between the inpatient and the outpatient world, uh, I think, also starts to blur. And I think having people that do understand how to do transitions of care and, and facilitate that effectively, uh, and I think that's going to be the hospitalist, uh, those systems are going to prosper if they're able to do that. Um, you know, from a GME point of view, 
you know, I'll make this point, Todd. With the new ACGME training requirements, and, you know, this may become even more stringent going forward, uh, but for your audience and people that don't know, uh, as of July 1st of, of this year, uh, interns, that is first-year first residents, can work no more than 16 hours in a row. I think that, that this is a good thing uh, because it ensures that people that are providing care are rested and can make uh, appropriate decisions. But I also think that unless there is some modification in the way that we supervise residents, there may be a lot lost. Case in point, in the old system, the one benefit that you did have as a resident is that you were there for a full 24 or 30 hours. You'd make an intervention, and you were there to see if that was intervention was correct or not. And that's how you learned what the appropriate dose of Lasix was uh, in a patient with heart failure. If it was too little, then you learned that the patient was still dyspneic and you needed to give more. If it was too much, they became hypotensive, and you learned, well, that was too much. But you can see how in shorter shifts that people can make an intervention then leave the hospital and never know that that was not the right amount uh, of Lasix to give or never learn that you don't give standard doses of insulin to a patient who's now in renal failure. They become hyperglycemic because they can't clear the insulin. So the role now has shifted, and if you think about it, back in the old days, it was residents who resided in the hospital all the time and attending physicians that came in intermittently to see how they were doing. And now where you've got residents that are coming in intermittently with their shifts. Now it's almost a flip-flop that you need physicians that are there all the time to be able to provide them uh, that reflective experience of, hey, let me just tell you what happened overnight while you weren't here. And I think that's a role that hospitals can provide, not just in providing cap coverage and managing some of the patients separate from the teaching services, but to be that person that can be uh, the steward and provide some reflective uh, component to the resident's experience. I think it's central to meaningful improvement, which probably buffers what educational components were lost by spending less time as a part of residency training. Dr. Weiss, thank you very much for participating in today's discussion. Uh, it's a pleasure, Todd. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.